1885, it seemed that all of central Arizona was in an uproar. Ad hoc citizen committees were forming in the major cities, headed by their leading men, out of rage, paranoia, and fear. Guest speakers traveled to address these conventions, being greeted with rapturous applause as they denounced the great terror of their times. Resolutions were flying for Maricopa, Gila, and Graham counties to organize and cooperate as their individual boards of supervisors took official action, and the press would use all of its influence to rally the citizenry. The Florence Examiner newspaper would write enthusiastically about one of these local meetings, saying, quote, The people at last aroused, ringing resolutions, an enthusiastic meeting, end quote. As you might have guessed, the target of their anger, spite, and fear was none other than James Addison Rivas, who for the last two years had used a mixture of bribery, intimidation, and legalese to bully the population into paying for what they already rightfully owned. They were, to quote the movie network, all definitely mad as hell and weren't going to take it anymore. It, of course, being the absurd notion that was called the Peralta Grant. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 137, The Baron of Arizona, Part 3. What are you going to do about it? Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we learned the fascinating, but ultimately fictitious, history of the Barons of Arizona, from whom James Addison Rivas claimed to have received his documents showing his ownership of some 12 million acres of Arizona and New Mexico. We also ended with Rivas showing up in Tucson in March 1883 and filing his claim for said 12 million acres. And that's where we're going to pick up today, because... This here is the true beginning of his schemes, or the part where he actually starts conning people. Rivas initially moved his base of operations up to Phoenix, but perhaps realizing that he was literally the most hated man in the territory, he decided to relocate to somewhere more remote. Once again reaching into the intricately crafted backstory he had concocted, he declared that some old Amerindian ruins some distance south of the town of Casa Grande were, in fact, the remains of the original hacienda the first baron of Arizona had caused to be built in 1778. Here, in the community we know today as Arizona, he would build a magnificent baronial hall of red brick, with tall, gothic-esque windows, lots of wrought iron, and brass fixtures for the doors. Throughout his career, he would lavishly furnish this house and add to it servants' quarters, outbuilding stables, sheds, and finally encompassing it all with a thick stone wall. One source claims that this building was still around as late as the 1960s, and the National Park Service almost considered making it into a national monument. And right now, I'm kind of sad they didn't, because it sounds like a sight to see. But once ensconced in this home befitting someone claiming rights to ancient Spanish land, the Tarantula Baron, as he would soon be dubbed both for the numerous spiders in that section of the desert as well as his grasping plans, really set to work. You'll recall from our last episode that Rivas had brought a drunken, disbarred lawyer named Cyril Barrett with him, 
and had tasked Barrett with compiling a list of land and mine owners inside of his self-declared barony. The pair also began recruiting less than reputable characters, drafting them into a legion of representatives, agents, rent collectors, and enforcers. These were tasked with going out to any community that fell within the Peralta Grant, and putting up notices proclaiming that anyone with a property title or with squatter's rights needed to contact Revis's attorney, Barrett, to register their land and sign some agreements. If they would not, they should, quote, regard themselves liable to litigation for trespassing and expulsion when the Peralta Grant is, as it must be, validated by the U.S. government, end quote. So if you've been wondering up to this point how Revis made any real money off of his scheme, this is it right here. These same agents, or really thugs, would go out and tell everyone they found that their land wasn't actually theirs. However, being a very fair man and understanding that things had changed since the 1700s when the Peralta family had claimed all of this land, Revis offered any and all a way out. Namely, they simply had to agree to what's known as a quitclaim deed that would give them their own property in exchange for a small token payment or a tidy little rent. Now, I'm only conversational in legalese, but basically a quitclaim deed is a type of transaction whereupon the seller gives all rights to the land to the buyer, but without the guarantee that the seller actually owns the property in question. And notice what a smooth operator Revis is right now. In his advertisements, he's saying that the grant isn't validated yet, and even the deeds he's given to people are not guarantees of ownership. But what he did do is sow enough confusion and rumor that people didn't know what to believe, or if any day now they would learn that Revis did, in fact, own everything under the sun. So some farmer or blue-collar worker, intimidated by all the legal jargon being thrown at them, would buy one of these quitclaim deeds, which came complete with a fancy certificate with Revis's signature and embossed seal, just to cover all their bases. And this is how Revis started raking in the cash. By the time his schemes were eventually all exposed, he had become a multi-millionaire. Sometimes he would just gift these deeds to folks who either showed him some bit of hospitality or maybe just gave him a nice meal, just to keep up with his ostentatious and generous facade as the new lord of Arizona. However generous and amiable Revis tried to pass himself off as, his enforcers and agents were a whole different story. We find plenty of examples of almost modern protection rackets, where an agent would come by on Tuesday and you paid him for your piece of paper, but then another agent comes by the following Monday demanding money. When you say, wait, I paid for this on Tuesday, the new guy says, oh, that was just a receipt of partial payment and you owe the rest now. And if a landowner was unwilling to sign over their property, they then received a visit either from Barrett or Pedro Cuervo, Revis's bodyguard and head thug, or they were mysteriously ransacked by horsemen who came out of nowhere and no one could prove were linked to Revis. Early state historian James H. McClintock even passes along rumors in Phoenix at the time that if someone didn't agree to Revis's offer, he would actually sell a deed to their land to a third party. 
There also was no rhyme or reason to the amounts that Rivas's goons were charging people, with pricing fluctuating wildly even among neighbors. Some people could be charged upward $1,000, or nearly $30,000 today, while others, like I said, just had to hand the Baron a sandwich and he would sign the property over to them. As you can imagine, this caused all sorts of confusion across the territory, and soon it was hard for anyone to even think about engaging in land deals because... If so many people were selling out to Rivas, what was the point? And things got even more grim in the summer of 1883, when news broke that the fabulously wealthy Silver King Mine in Superior had reached an agreement with a San Francisco-based attorney for Rivas to pay him $25,000 in royalties. While that was only a fraction of the mine's worth, which was more than $50 million, Symbolically, it was a huge step toward declaring Rivas's claim legitimate. After all, if the intelligent and keen owner of the territory's wealthiest mine, who had quite the legal team himself, decided it was better to pay than fight this, what chance did all the little guys have? However, the little guys did have champions in the form of local newspapers, who were all uniformly agreed that Rivas was a charlatan that must be defeated. Now, the would-be baron did try to ingratiate himself at the papers, offering interviews and to show his documents to any interested reporters. And there were maybe a few newsmen that he managed to buy off, but overall, the press was not his friend. In July 1883, the Phoenix Gazette ran a story under the bold headline of What Are You Going to Do About It? which read in part, quote, are you going to sleep on your rights and allow this scheme to be consummated without as much as a protest? Your course must be peace or war. What shall it be? End quote. The Phoenix Herald followed suit, continuously launching broadsides at Rivas. Seizing on the uncertainty that had gripped the territory since his whole business had started, it would write in August 1883, quote, Mr. Rivas is a bright, far-seeing man. He foresaw that by doing what he has done, the title of the lands throughout the whole county concern would be clouded, and that the prosperity of the country would cease and transactions in real estate would be throttled. We learned that within the past few days, one or two pending transactions in real estate have been declared off on account of the Revis claim. End quote. However, Several months later, the Gazette would suddenly become suspiciously docile toward the Baron and his land grab. The Herald noticed this, and in November of that same year, it broke the sensational story that Homer McNeil, the Gazette's editor, had sold out to Rivas. McNeil was a wealthy man, but most of that wealth had been tied up in, wait for it, real estate. So worried that he might lose everything should Rivas's claim be accepted and then the newly created baron should be in a retaliatory mood, McNeil met with him in secret and struck a deal. The only hitch was that this deal had to be recorded at the land records office, which is how the Herald was able to get its hands on the details. And you better believe it wasted no time thundering this from the rooftops and publicly shaming McNeil, now calling the Gazette the Revis Organ, and saying that its editor had basically given in to Revis's pressure and played right into his hands. In short, the Gazette had gone over to the enemy and betrayed the people of Phoenix, and the Herald wanted to make sure everyone, including subscribers to and advertisers in the Gazette, knew it. 
McNeil had no choice, and on the very same day that the Herald published its story, he gathered two members of the territorial legislature, a judge, and a few other leading citizens to witness him canceling his deal. They watched him draw a big red X across the paper submitted with the land record office, which were then sent to Rivas. And the Gazette quickly published an apology, stating that it was an error, but that it had been trying to position itself as independent and above retaliation should Rivas actually win in his designs. As far as rationales went, it was a weak one, and the Gazette would take its lumps from a gloating herald for some time to come. But as contentious as the Herald and the Gazette were, Rivas's most staunch foe in the press might have been the one-man operation that was the Florence Enterprise and its editor-slash-publisher-slash-printer-slash-chief-reporter Tom Whedon. Now, you wouldn't think that the once-a-week Florence Enterprise, with a circulation of just a few hundred copies, would be that big of a concern, considering that Rivas was already duking it out with the big Phoenix papers. But boy, oh boy, did it become one of the Baron's most intractable foes. At first, Whedon ran in his paper the numerous ads from Rivas's agents talking about royalty payments and quitclaim deeds because that was just business. However, soon the stories began to trickle into his office from various landowners who had been harassed about the Peralta grant, including dirt-poor farmers making a meager living asking for advice, businessmen bemoaning the massive slowdown in real estate because of the issue, and even the news of an older woman who had actually committed suicide because of how much Rivas's men were harassing her. Whedon began running these stories as they came into him, which caused more people to report about their rough treatment at the hands of these agents, enforcers, and goons. Soon his editorials began to fire broadsides at the Baron, saying that the claim had not been recognized and it was possible it never would be. And just like that, Rivas had a determined foe in Pinal County opposing his scheme. Author E.H. Cookridge relates that the would-be Baron tried to remove this obstacle by appearing at the offices of the Enterprise in the fall of 1883, and straight up trying to bribe Whedon with sacks of gold. That would be generously donated to the continued printing of his excellent newspaper, don't you know? When Whedon passed on this naked attempt to buy him off, Cookridge says that Rivas made vague threats about the safety of the editor's family and left. It's at that point that Whedon picked up his pen to start writing his next withering article about the Peralta Grant and the man who claimed to own it. Later on, he would actually run another story under the simple headline of Outrage, in which he related that two men had broken into the offices of the paper one night and smashed furniture, spilled the type for the press out on the street, and even attempted to start a fire in the room containing the paper used for producing the Enterprise. It was only the timely arrival of Whedon at the office that kept the place from burning to the ground. Though it was never proven, you can bet that the editor identified the men he saw riding away from the building as more Rivas goons. And if Rivas thought that thuggery would cow Whedon into submission, he really misjudged his man. But we'll get more into that in just a second. Because before the Herald exposed the Gazette for selling out to Rivas, but after Rivas attempted to bribe-slash-threaten Whedon, he made another move to attempt to shore up his claim. Rivas had filed for his land in late March 1883 with Arizona's U.S. Surveyor General 
Joseph W. Robbins. And Robbins was attempting to do his due diligence in investigating this claim, which would involve going down into Mexico to check out the archives that Rivas claimed the documents had come from. However, Robbins himself was suffering from tuberculosis, so he couldn't go. Instead, he appointed one of his senior clerks and an expert on Spanish land claims named Rufus C. Hopkins to head south and conduct this research. When Rivas learned about this, he approached Hopkins and kindly offered his services to introduce him to the archivist and guide him to the right places where he had found all the documents in question. Without informing his boss, Hopkins, who was a 70-year-old man and on good terms with Rivas, readily agreed to this help. I think you can see where this is going. Once in Mexico, Rivas was ever so helpful, introducing Hopkins to the right men, all the archivists that he had charmed before, and making sure he was guided to the right stack of documents to search. Rivas oversaw every inch of this investigation, and lo and behold, he even found a copy of the 1748 royal decree where the king recommended to the viceroy that the grant be given. What are the odds? So, overall, this trip was a smashing success, as Hopkins returned to the U.S. to say that there was a lot of merit for Rivas's claim. But here, things hit the skids. Because after they returned to Arizona in early January 1884, they discovered that Hopkins' boss, Robbins, had actually died. In his place had been elevated his chief clerk, Royal A. Johnson, who would both be vilified and praised by the people of Arizona for his role in the Peralta Grant. Despite Hopkins' report that Rivas' claims seemed to be well-founded, Johnson was unimpressed with his report and was determined to do his due diligence no matter what. He was also unimpressed with the work Hopkins had done in Mexico, noting that the man had taken a look at the various seals and signatures but hadn't actually studied the documents themselves in any detail. Furthermore, he hadn't found a signature of King Carlos III of Spain slash Holy Roman Emperor Charles V to match against the ones on Rivas' documents, which was kind of important. And finally, when pressed, Hopkins admitted that he had not even found a single piece of paper with the name Miguel Peralta on it. These were all major strikes against the validity of the Peralta grant, and Johnson wanted to take his time to sort through everything. He also corresponded with archives in both the United States and Mexico, asking that all necessary documents be sent to him for his review and perusal. However, this dedication to his job and insistence on not being hurried while he was sorting through the massive pile of paperwork made Johnson supremely unpopular. The population of Arizona wanted him to declare, then and now, that the grant was a fraud and to get rid of the beanpole baron ASAP. The fact that he hadn't done so and that he kept his investigation close to the vest made him a popular target in the press, who started saying that Johnson was in Rivas's pocket and his delays were meant to allow the Baron to keep on operating. And it didn't help any that at the same time, Rivas was forever pestering Johnson to just release the report saying his claim was legitimate already, for the good of ending the speculation and uncertainty, of course. And though Johnson obviously didn't do that, it didn't deter Rivas from loudly proclaiming to everyone that Johnson couldn't find any fault with his grant, and he was going to approve it any day now. 
In fact, Revis stepped up his game a notch, writing to powerful political officials across the country, asking them to leverage whatever influence they had with the Secretary of the Interior just to declare that the Peralta grant was legitimate. It's telling of his charm and powers of persuasion that he was able to bring over to his side such men as Roscoe Conkling, the powerful Republican senator and political boss from New York. Indeed, if Grover Cleveland had not won the presidency in 1884, Revis might have made a lot more headway. He, along with some political allies, also started dropping hints that he would relinquish all claims to the grant should the United States wish to purchase it from him and turn it once again into public land. The price would have to be a mere down payment of uh, $20 million, with an annual payment of $100 million until Revis had gotten his fair share. I honestly don't know what the value of the land was or how many payments Revis could expect in this model, but at the very least, this would have made him one of the richest men in the Southwest, if not the country. However, as Indiana Jones taught us, when you're about to obtain what you want, that's right when the rug is pulled out from under your feet. And Revis soon found himself under legal scrutiny again, including from an unexpected source, the Willing family. The Baron must have thought that he was done with the Willings after Marianne had signed over her husband's claim to the grant to him just a few short years before. Except George Willing Sr., the rich father of Doc Willing, was incensed that his daughter-in-law had signed away everything and announced that he was pursuing ownership of the grant. This gets deep into the legal weeds, but as far as I can tell, Mr. Willing Sr. argued that Marianne's deal with Revis was invalid on some technicality, and he was now pressing a claim. Upon learning of Revis's schemes, he declared in 1883 that he was forming a group to also sell land to the residents, and at 20% less than they could get if they bought the land through the U.S. government. However, Willing was a late entrant into this race, and not a very good one at that. His syndicate soon ran out of money, and his lawyers couldn't press the case any further. By 1885, Willing was forced to admit defeat and gave up entirely. He had also been attacked by these same newspapers that wouldn't let up on Revis, who declared, quote, Those who purchase deeds from either will act in haste and repent at leisure. End quote. However, the second legal challenge was one that was much, much more serious. This time it came from Clark Churchill, Arizona's Attorney General. Churchill owned quite a bit of land in Phoenix, and though Revis had not come after him personally yet, he was still threatened by the whole general atmosphere of fear and uncertainty. So he filed a personal suit in court to have Revis show cause for his claim, and if he couldn't, have the court basically grant Churchill the title to any of his lands inside of the still unverified Peralta grant. The clever thing about this move was that it forced Revis into a courtroom to both testify about his activities and submit his documentation for perusal. Revis would show up for a preliminary hearing in February 1884, where he would argue that he had a valid claim that was on the verge of being recognized by the United States, and that he had the right to sell quitclaim deeds in order to ensure his property would not suffer any depreciation until it was verified. During his examination, Churchill did his level best to paint Revis as a crook and a thug, but the Baron proved to be a slippery character on the stand. His answers were so evasive and non-committal that it was hard to really nail him on 
anything. He tried to make it sound like his business dealings were so vast and so complex that he couldn't answer any questions about how many deeds he had paid for or how much money he had made without checking with his massive network of agents. Revis would never give a figure, but Cookridge estimates by this time he had maybe gained upward of $150,000 from these deeds, not counting any backing from the Southern Pacific Railroad. Some of that went to the people he had hired to round up more scared citizens willing to pay for their own land, but still he must have amassed a tidy fortune already. And apparently Churchill was able to get him to admit that he had paid Mary Ann Willing just a small fraction of the $30,000 he had promised her, though he couldn't give an exact figure about how much he had paid her without talking to his agents. The case would languish in court for another year, with Revis using every trick he could to delay it. At one point, he argued that the court didn't have any jurisdiction to rule on the case since this was a Spanish grant that the U.S. Surveyor General was considering. The court shot this notion down, and in May 1885, basically declared that since the Surveyor General had not come to any conclusions yet on the validity of the claim, that it would settle the matter instead of leaving everything to doubt and uncertainty. The judge sided with Churchill, granting him the title to his property and dealing Revis's whole scheme a crushing blow. By this point, public opinion was solidly against Revis, with committees forming all across the territory to oppose him and his plans. As you might expect, Tom Whedon was chair of the anti-Revis committee in Florence, which was no less as fierce as the larger ones forming in Phoenix, Mesa, and Globe. The Florence Enterprise, under Whedon's pen, would write, quote, the people of the Gila Valley begin their war against the beanpole baron, end quote. While the Phoenix Herald proclaimed, quote, no more fraud, rascally Revis must go, end quote. At the same time, public opinion remained firmly against Royal A. Johnson, who was still methodically researching the Peralta Grant a year after taking up his post. Johnson would complain to his supervisors about how Revis would go about claiming to be on friendly terms with him and misrepresenting everything he was told by Johnson's office. He also blamed a group of bad actors and aspiring politicians for joining with Revis and causing all the uproar that was making his job so much harder to do. Finally, though, Johnson's superiors decided that they just had enough of everything. In May 1885, Johnson received a curt note from the Commissioner of the General Land Office that said the following, quote, It is my opinion that the futile work in which you have been engaged for a year and a half in the direction of investigating an alleged claim which, from your own statement of its uncorroborated character, had not been placed before you in a condition to be entitled to consideration, should forthwith be discontinued. The only effect of your action and proceedings has been to needlessly alarm citizens in lawful and peaceful possession of homes and property, to imperil valuable mining interests, and to intimidate settlements upon public lands. End quote. In case you couldn't follow that, the commissioner basically told Johnson to shut down his investigation because obviously Johnson didn't think the claim was valid or the documents up to snuff, so it wasn't even worth considering. Furthermore, the commissioner unfairly put upon Johnson all the uncertainty and trouble that Revis himself had been stirring up. Which is really unfair to the surveyor general who was just doing his job, and doing it well, I may add. 
but this isn't the last time Johnson will pop up in our story. For now, however, he happily complied with the orders given him, and he closed down the investigation. And now, jubilation breaks out across the entire territory, because the government had basically come out and said that Rivas's grant was so obviously a fake that it didn't even merit looking into. Coupled with Churchill's victory in court, it seemed like the Peralta grant was about to evaporate after nearly two long years of upheaval. The Phoenix Herald was quick to dub Rivas, quote, The Duke of Arizona, Earl of the Iron Jaw, Count of Confidence, Lord of the Limber Tongue, end quote, while decrying his bogus claim. The Tucson citizen was also quick to declare that Rivas was nailed up and his fraudulent claim punctured. At this point, Rivas could see the handwriting on the wall. His agents could no longer go out out of fear of being physically assaulted, which actually did happen to some of the less fortunate of them. There was even talk among the mob of laying hands on Rivas himself and maybe stringing him up from a particularly tall saguaro. After conferring with his top lieutenants, Barrett and Cuervo, the would-be Baron decided that there was no point in continuing his scheme in such a hostile atmosphere. So, on the morning of one of the major anti-Rivas committee meetings in Phoenix, he suddenly remembered some pressing business that needed his attention in San Francisco, and, according to Whedon's Enterprise at least, he quietly loaded up some luggage into a wagon that had been pulled up to the back door of his hotel, and he was soon on his way back to California. The citizens living inside of the Peralta Grant all gave a cheer and a sigh of relief when they learned that Rivas had fled. They had won, and all was well with the world again. Soon, the memory of Rivas and his land scheme were replaced with the other big news of the day. There was going to be a railroad line to link Phoenix with Maricopa, finally bringing the Iron Horse into the growing community. Also, shortly after Rivas's flight, Geronimo and more than 100 Apache made their last breakout from the reservation, which would occupy everyone's attention until the wildly renegade surrendered the following year. However... The citizens of Arizona should also have paid attention to a small note from the Los Angeles Express newspaper that re-ran in the Phoenix Gazette in the summer of 1885. It read simply, quote, Mr. J.A. Rivas, who has a land claim in Arizona, is visiting St. Elmo. He will start soon for Spain with the intention of searching the records of Madrid. End quote. I have no idea how the readers of the Gazette took this brief news, or if they gave it any mind or worry at all. However, they should all have been very, very worried about Rivas's activity. Because believe it or not, this is not the end of the story of the Baron of Arizona. Indeed, this is only the end of Act 1. You might be asking, what's left to say his scheme fell apart under public pressure and some governmental indifference? But... After a two-year intermission, Rivas would kick off Act 2 when he again entered Arizona to press his ownership of the massive and definitely real Peralta Grant. So join me next week as Rivas leans heavily into the concept of doubling down on his con. But this time he wouldn't just come with documents that established the grant. No, this time he would appear with the heir to the grant herself. 
I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.